Angel in the Dark, our monthly conversation about the wonder of science and how it illuminates our lives in this incredible universe. In association with the Central Valley Cafe Scientifique, we strive to make science a part of our public discourse, especially here in California's Central Valley. This month, while the Cafe Scientifique is on its summer break, we bring you a wide-ranging conversation about how humans interact with nature in cities and how scientists study this human-nature relationship. Your host, Dr. Madhu Kati from the Biology Department of Fresno State, recorded the following conversation during the 8th International Urban Wildlife Conference held in Chicago during May 2015. Here on the final day of this International Urban Wildlife Conference, and I have with me one of the plenary speakers and one of the last speakers of the conference, Dr. Paige Warren from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, talking about social ecological interactions in urban environments. And I have Dr. Charlie Nylon from University of Missouri in Columbia, who talked about global aspects of collaboration and asking questions about urban wildlife on a global scale. So I'd like to chat with both of you about your perspectives on these broader dimensions of urban ecology, you know, bringing in the social and how that informs urban ecology as well as what's the significance of doing it on a global scale. I'll just start by saying that, uh, that we should acknowledge that Charlie was one of the pioneers of thinking yes. about social ecological okay. interactions with wildlife and um, thinking about the dimensions of um, not just income but race, race and ethnicity and the, the ways that cities have been shaped by those processes. So. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the answer is that it kind of goes back a ways, and I think there's been interest in that for a while, so that's great. Yeah, thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, so welcome to Science, a Candle in the Dark. Thank oh, you. thank yeah. you. Okay. Well, I'll mention on, on some of the global things, um, a little bit of history of this goes back to yeah. about 11 or 12 years, and obviously there's probably history longer than that, but one of the interests in what, we're, what we got involved with was um, can you learn about cities, about the ecology of cities, and about conservation management of cities by comparing cities around the world. In other words, can you learn from looking at lots and lots of cities about patterns that might exist, about diversity? Can you learn about different approaches to management and monitoring, and so on? So one thing that a group of us, including you guys, have been involved with for the mm -hmm. last probably five, five years or so has been to really try to understand uh, or to try to come up with ways of linking people together. And, uh, and try to facilitate that. And we've been fortunate to get a couple grants that have allowed us to do that. So we've been able to get started developing a network of people and be able to look at data a little bit globally about cities and biodiversity. Uh, this is the Urbionet. Right, Urbionet, which is uh, funded by the National Science Foundation and is called the Urban Biodiversity Research Coordination Network. And uh, so basically, it's a network to bring together people from around the world uh, who have an interest in biodiversity in cities. And it includes people who are researchers who have some research questions. Yeah. It includes people who are practitioners. We have some people who are managers. We have people who work for NGOs. We have people who are uh, landscape architects, planners, a variety of different kinds of people. And this is a very interdisciplinary Definitely. science, yeah. right? Yeah, it's an interdisciplinary science with people with a background in social science, design, landscape architecture, wildlife management, urban forestry, lots of different disciplines involved. It, we've just recognized that you can't really understand anything about biodiversity in cities without understanding something about people, since yeah. people are the... Exactly. We might not be the most abundant species in cities, if you count mm -hmm. count some of the non-human bugs and things like that, but, but, uh, but certainly we drive a lot of the patterns, and so this 
project has uh, some initial findings that I think reinforce that, that uh, the patterns that we found across the globe in terms of the number of species that you find in cities, the, one of the biggest predictors of that are factors that have to do with people, about the age of the city, how much uh, the, the sort of land use, how much remnant vegetation, native vegetation is left. Those are things that are driven by planning and mm -hmm. processes that are human-driven. As so opposed to climate or some of the other things that you would think would drive the number of species in a city. Yeah, so, but I think I'm thinking sort of from the viewpoint of our audience perhaps. <laughs> you talked about the importance of including people when considering biodiversity in cities, which kind of flips how people, how the ordinary people person might think about cities. You don't think about biodiversity as something that occurs in a city. You know, cities are where people are. So you, the way you presented it, I like that you flipped the, the thing and said people are also there in this biodiversity <laughs> that you're studying. So that, that I think is, my, I mean, is that a, uh, is what you found in the global analysis something that's surprising to you or, and to people who've been reading about it? Would you say? Um, is that relatively new to think about biodiversity in, in cities? Yes and no. There's been a long period of people looking at wildlife in cities and looking at wildlife conservation in cities and wildlife management in cities, I would say the sort of bigger picture I'm focusing on biodiversity is, yeah. is, is, is a little bit, is a little newer. It's mm -hmm. always kind of been there, but I think that, that uh, because man management tends to focus more on particular, it's more issue driven, more problem solving driven, and so probably the parts about biodiversity is just understanding how many species are in a city and so on, that's, maybe, that's, that's a little more recent. I think that, that, as Charlie said, it's, there's been quite some time that scientists and even maybe managers have yeah. recognized the number of species yeah. that live in cities, but as a general public awareness yeah. of people interact and how many interactions there are with how many different species, yeah. and that it's not just a small number of species that that are the, the, the sort of cast, standard cast of characters like pigeons and rats yeah. and cockroaches mm -hmm. and things that there are there are other species that people might actually really want to see mm -hmm. that occur in cities. I think that's been a sort of fairly newly emerging consciousness, but I think we're in an epoch where people are starting to recognize that and we're yeah. just contributing a little bit to it, I think, with our work. But we're trying to also really be able to document and quantify as Charlie said, trying to figure out what some of the mechanisms are so that maybe we can manage cities to improve biodiversity and improve people's access to biodiversity in the city. Why is it important to try and do that in cities? The focus of biodiversity conservation in general has been in you know, like national parks or places away from cities. Why is it important to work in cities? Well, I, w I would say I think that first, I think there's just been always an inherent interest in nature in cities. There's a book by uh, Mike Kalk from uh, Portland, who yeah, was yeah. and he wrote a book about wildlife in Portland. And one that's interesting, his very first chapter, he has an account of these two gentlemen, older gentlemen who are probably in their 70s. And it starts out with this account of them talking about growing up in Portland in the 1930s and riding their bikes out to all mm -hmm. these places which are now suburbs and built up and all these things, but just about how many different species they saw. And then just talk about how many species they still see, and these guys who are active birders, you know, so this idea that there's this inherent interest in nature and cities, I think, I think is, is always yeah. pretty strong, you know, that, that something about biodiversity is important to people, the idea of going out and seeing things and seeing nature yeah. is important. Some of the work that you know, Paige has done in looking at different cities and looking at in uh, 
Phoenix and and in other places, kind of building on this idea of how directly people interact with nature in so many different ways. I think is really is is, is really emerging. There's this idea of nearby nature that Charlie's worked with for years, but mm-hmm. there's other researchers that sort of came up coined that phrase. But but uh, that basically the nature we experience most often in our lives are the nearby nature and for most people nearby nature is an urban nature mm-hmm. because most people live in cities now or cities and suburbs so um, if we want people to be able to experience nature we have to consider the nature that's in in yeah. the city um, and there's lots of studies about I'm sure you've probably had other speakers yeah. talk about the value of, of experiencing nature for people in lots of different ways in terms of health and mental health and things like that. What about scientifically? Are there any interest, you know, is there something unique that studying biodiversity in a city brings to the table of biodiversity science? Well, I think one thing that's been, that's been interesting going back, if you look at urban ecology as a yeah. discipline, I think one thing that's been interesting going back, it's roots as a discipline going back to like say the 40s, for yeah, yeah. Herbert Sukoff and Numata and those guys like that who were the people who did a lot of early work a lot of their ideas really were that that cities have biodiversity and I mean sort of an, an inherent replacement in their work was this idea that cities are places that you can study that you can understand that you can understand biodiversity and they have unique combinations of sorts of species mm-hmm. and they have native species and non-native species where they're unique places ecologically that are worthwhile to study so I think there's a yeah. So species that belong in the in the region versus species that have been moved from somewhere else. Yeah, right? and just yeah, clarifying yeah, terminology. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's species which are evolved there, I guess would be one way of saying yeah. it. And then species which have been brought there in a variety of ways or arrived there on their own. Yeah. But the idea of, of saying that there are cities which have and then there, and then there are a bunch of species which live in cities globally. Yeah, especially with plants. There are a lot of species which just seem to have always done well in cities through at least as large as yeah. recording information about cities. These things are important to understand. So the idea that cities have a lot of species in them and that those are important to study, you know, that emerged, say, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. I think what we're seeing now is this recognition that we live in the Anthropocene, mm-hmm. that there's yeah. climate change occurring and, and cities with things like the urban heat island effect, the idea that, that cities retain greater amounts of heat and, and, and have warmer temperatures in surrounding areas, gives us a, a window, essentially, to cities potentially are a window into the future um, globally. And then also the recognition that, as we're talking about native and non-native species, the ways that people move species around the globe, cities are hot spots for introductions yeah. and they're also places where people reshuffle the combinations the, of species in ways shape that the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the plants in your yard might be from the Mediterranean Africa, yeah. South Africa uh, and North America and, and, all, and mixed all up mixed in a way together. that evolution would never so have reshuff- seen, yeah. shuffled things and so cities are a great place to study that reshuffling process and what it means and what it how it shapes the the evolution and the behavior and the interactions of species, which is kind of the fundamental yeah. questions of ecology and biology. Yeah. Yeah. So I think cities are great laboratories for understanding a changing world. Yeah, definitely. definitely. Where does the social science come in then? This is the ecological side of things. You, you've talked about interdisciplinary science. Does that provide fundamentally new insights into these ecological questions? Or is there a new kind of ecology in cities that social science helps us understand as well? 
think we're still not there yet with the answer yeah. to that question. Yeah. We're still yeah. trying to under grapple with how we even go about putting together the, uh, our understanding of biological and ecological processes and our understanding of social processes, which have been tr traditionally studied very separately. Yeah. There's a long history, just longer history, I'd say, of studying urban sociology, of ur like the, sort of how people live in cities and mm -hmm. what does that mean for the change, you know, the changing changes in neighborhoods over time and things like that, and what does that mean for quality of life. Th those are sort of long-time questions in sociology, but they were studied relatively separately, even yeah. when they considered people's environments frequently people considered pollution or they considered crime or things like that in yeah. sort of classic studies it's sort of a relatively new thing to think about oh how does how does that classic understanding of human interactions in the city relate to what species are there and how people interact with them and so we're still kind of figuring out the tools for the toolbox for making that integration yeah. and what it's going to mean for our understanding of the world in general. But I think there's ways that we will. There's a number of things we've found, um, as you've probably talked about in yeah. Fresno, the role of water yeah. Um, yeah. and how, the, how the, the, um, the, the amount of water that we use in our landscapes actually, to some extent, decouples classic yeah. things that that were, yeah. were, were would normally be coupled like the relationship between the abundance of bugs and rainfall you yeah. know and and on vegetation bugs living on vegetation mm -hmm. typically fluctuate in sort of perfect synchrony with rainfall um, and then but when you have watered lawns that are they synchronizing with the, synchronizing with the water? Exactly. So, so there's some work from Phoenix, yeah. not by me, but by uh, yeah. by others in Phoenix on that, and I think it mm -hmm. relates very much to what you've talked about probably yeah. before on the show from Fresno. So, um, so when we start seeing those kinds of decouplings, that can maybe give us interesting insights into, eco you know, basic yeah. ecology. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think too that the, the if you come for some of the questions, the sort of management questions, the conservation yeah. questions, I think you know you need the ecological understanding of how people and their activities shape uh, yeah. ecology of cities, and then also that whole question of how people make decisions and how they and what outcome those decisions have. And I think all that's being sorted out as well. You know, whole way of how decision making works because we use the term decision making, but I think we're still trying to decide what that really means and how it really applies in cities and and we know and things it's, it's likely yeah. to be quite variable and messy perhaps right as well. right and we know that like we know a lot we, we, we're sit, we begin to see a lot of patterns that emerge and we're yeah. trying to understand how those work and so you get into some more of the, the things like about income and ethnicity and affluence and all the other terms we start using to describe that and and social structure and all those, you know, how those really work. Like, um, you know, there's some things suggest, for example, that one reason why, say, home ownership is important and this drives a lot, because mm -hmm. I say with, tree, with trees, the street tree patterns and all this, is because home ownership is, is tied to a lot of the programs that work with tree planting. So a lot of cities have a variety of environmental programs they're tied to being a homeowner. So if you're a homeowner, you have access to a lot of mm -hmm. resources from the city, a lot of programs, which allow you to shape, which allow you to do this, like plant trees, get free trees, plant them. You know, while if you're a renter, you don't have access to those programs in the same way. So that, that shapes a pattern of where there are trees and not trees in some cities. And so, so, but just understanding 
how those sort of human factors yeah. also drive some of the decisions yeah. that people make. And so, so those things, again, I'd say like Paige said, that those are things which we, which trying to understand how that works and how that fits in ecologically and how that also fits in with the theories that social scientists think are, think are going on and how that fits in with the ecological theory. So that's, that's, still, that's pretty messy still. Yeah. And as you're talking about home ownership and from the point of view of these city policies and things that might be available, I'm also, I was also thinking about how that might influence how people think about the land, if, if you yeah. own or not, and what how you might relate to a tree if it's something yeah. you planted versus yeah, something exactly. that your landlord yeah. has put in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's something I've been thinking about in terms of this human aspect of cities uh, interacting with ecology. You mentioned the Anthropocene page and, mm-hmm. you know, and that term has come from geology. So essentially, geologists have recognized humans as a geological force mm-hmm. that's shaping the planet. So a while ago, I sort of talked about this a little bit with some geologist colleagues. And what I started thinking about cities, and this was especially, there was an article, I think, in IO9, the website about the Anthropocene, where they had these images of uh, some dense city in the, in, in the in North Africa or Middle East somewhere. And the picture was basically just, you know, the, the a frame with just rooftops of these highly tightly packed and it's hard to discern anything natural in that. And thinking about that as sort of a geological change, it just struck me that that's almost like having a a volcano erupt and a lava flow or something like that that just completely obliterates or transforms the landscape. But then you have recolonization and maybe some of that is beginning to happen. We heard some talks about how wildlife is adapting to cities and people are becoming more tolerant of wildlife. What struck me is that maybe the Anthropocene and this human geological force gives us the opportunity to study how these eco- new ecosystems come together in a way that's you know fundamentally different from studying a volcano. Effectively, we have the opportunity to talk to the volcano here <laughs> and find out the motivations of the volcano <laughs> in creating this and potentially change the nature of that lava flow you know maybe it's a little far out but that's my no, I think that's exactly sort of right. way I'm trying to trying no, I think that's exactly think right this. I think that's one of the one of the motivations for understanding what if we can understand what sort of hu- human social processes have a biggest influence on what yeah. birds are in the city what bugs are in the city what what mammals like coyotes and and squirrels and all of those things where they are and how they live in the city then we can dig deeper into that with the partnership with people who are social scientists yeah. not me but dig in deeper to why people have it that way is it because people choose to have their yards a certain way or is it because their choices are shaped and constrained in the ways that Charlie talked about that some people have greater influence over over their options Um, and some of those things are shaped by planners so that the neighborhood is structured a certain way not because you picked it when you moved in but because it was already a certain way Um, and so those then tell us where there's options for change and 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 maybe we even find out that neighborhoods are planned a certain way now the cul-de-sacs and mm-hmm. and lots of driving and to get to what you need and it would be better for wildlife let's say if it's done a different way maybe it would also be better for people so if we can yeah. understand people's r- responses to the to to different ways of of arranging resources maybe we can make things better for birds and people yeah just following up on that a little bit as I, I might be getting venturing a little further out but I want to ask you Charlie especially and you may feel free to not answer this <laughs> if, you, if you don't want but uh, 
No, I, I know you've been working for a long time in, in Baltimore. Yeah. A city yeah. that's been very much in the news sure. lately. Sure. As a and, state. Yeah, yeah and as both of you have been working there. And, yeah. and you, you especially, and, and Paige mentioned that you, you're one of the pioneers of working on race and ethnicity <laughs> issues and how that influences the urban environment. Yeah. Can you comment on, or what's your perspective on what's been happening in Baltimore and the, is there an ecological, environmental dimension to this that we haven't heard about? Well, I'm, I'm going I'm to preface it by saying that my observations are, I'm going an observation based on someone who does research in Baltimore but doesn't yeah. live in Baltimore, and so I'm going to speak about more just my perception, but I think well, in Baltimore and other cities as well. I would say a couple things first, that I'll preface by saying I think that one thing that often doesn't get in a lot of the, both the media and in a lot of the literature about interactions and social justice and race and, and, and environment is, is that there's a pretty long history, for example, in Baltimore and St. Louis and other cities of in the black community of environmental programs. For example, in Baltimore, there was a program, the Baltimore Afro-American newspaper started in the 1920s called the Afro-Clean Block Program. And there were others in other cities kind of like that with this idea of environment as being important. As Paige yeah. mentioned, environment in that case meant living in a clean and healthy environment. Yeah. So some of the things they were doing might not be what we would say now are the best practices to use as far as emphasized a lot of very clean and neat and orderly yards and those kinds mm -hmm. of things. But I think there's always been this idea that your environment is very important and that somehow an environment is a sign of being cared for, taken care of, and all that. And there's some social science that actually studied that yeah. and talked about that. You know, there's this idea mm -hmm. of like why you had an Afro clean block, clean block program and why they have this kind of clean block and block beautiful movement. And uh, there's some people who've actually studied that. But, but you know, their, their point was, was that there's always been this idea that environment's important. And I'd add that the environmental justice movement and those kinds of things mm -hmm. very much looked at what happens to people in cities and rural areas in terms of the environment. So, Can I ask Charlie yeah, whether yeah. Um, you would say that movements like the Afro-Clean Clean Block Program, sorry, tongue-tied, um, are, were supported by the city in any way or were they having to really operate on their own? Because one of the things we've been yeah. looking at is to what extent these sort of collective action things that arise out of neighborhoods yeah. mm -hmm. um, are more successful when they get institutional support in some way, whether it's mm -hmm. from nonprofit organizations or yeah. cities. Um, and I wonder, you know, I, and when my impression, get in the way or my, yeah. yeah, my impression from you know the situations that have arisen in Baltimore and mm -hmm. Ferguson is is partly from a sort of sense of disenfranchisement. Yeah. Um, I, I, th I, th I think that's true. I mean, I think a lot. I think a lot of the programs of Afro Clean Block, I think, went up until pretty recently. And I think this kind of petered out, and I think part of that was because it was run by a newspaper, and the newspaper's still going, but mm. the impression I got, and I'm not an expert in this at all, but the impression I, I heard from some people in Baltimore was, as the newspaper industry changed, and as sort of the role of some aspects of the newspaper, this is from a center called Afro Charities, did Afro Claim Block, and it was part of Af part of this newspaper, mm. which had this long history oh, in Baltimore okay. and all this. So that, that was a community program they did, and that gradually, as just the newspaper change. I mean, sort of their role in the community changed as they went more online and did different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Then they sort of changed how, how oh. the distance stuff. And then the city was involved in the last couple of years, but but they ran for, for probably about 60 years. And some some of the same blocks, and they were able to maintain it. But I think what they maintained was because they were an institution in the community, and so they reached people oh. who you wouldn't reach through other city programs. And again, I can't 
from what I know about Ferguson, what I hear from my colleagues in Missouri, you know, who, who know more about it, Ferguson is a suburban community. I mean, it, it's kind of portrayed, you know, to me, it's kind of portrayed in a strange way. But in the media, in the media, but and I, the political setting and all that. But, but the basic way to just think about it is, is that Ferguson's part of suburban St. Louis, but the way suburban St. Louis, some of the local governments work is, it's in the kind of it's kind of in a in a community that has a large black community and it has almost it had until the last election almost no political representation mm. and that has some real strange aspects of local government because yeah. of some things going you know because of just the history of St. Louis County yeah. so that idea of being disenfranchised I think not being connected to institutions is probably really strong and I think that what may be going on is that the kind of institutions like churches and community groups and different kinds of things that would have been kind of a connection with yeah. environmental programs like camps and yeah. all the things which kind of those kind of institutions do maybe have disappeared and again I'm not the right person to really yeah. talk about that because I don't know about Baltimore that that is back to Baltimore but I think that idea of of institutions kind of disappearing and not being replaced by anything mm. you know and that the city not being able to really respond to it um, I'll say real quickly and this gets way off topic but um, uh, if you all know about uh, Robert Bullard who's with uh, not Texas Southern University and Beverly Wright who's at Dillard University they're real active in the environmental justice movement okay. as researchers and yeah. They, by one of the Beverly Wright looked at was Hurricane Katrina and the response. Oh, yeah, so yeah, she yeah. runs a she runs a program called um, Deep South Environmental something Environmental Justice Center. And one of the things that she talks about in a couple of books she's written has been that after Katrina, that one of the things that happened was that New Orleans government said, "Hey, this is a great opportunity to address all these environmental ecological impacts." of flooding to, de to, you know, to reduce population densities in areas were flooded and all that, but that's also where a lot of people lived. Mm. And so the people who lived there got kind of caught between some environmental goals, yeah. different kinds of city planning goals, and these guys got caught. So their idea has been to try to say, could they develop sort of uh, a way to facilitate communities to be more engaged in the environment? So they do training about how to find out if your house is contaminated, and they do things about how about uh, sustainability practices in New Orleans and a lot mm -hmm. of things are really geared at, at certain communities in New Orleans so so their idea was to almost try to create a structure that they could put in place in New Orleans so that's a long oh. rambling answer I apologize about well, I'll just add that I, I think that your your description of the, um, the Afro-Clean Black program and the relationship to the media institution just highlights too how complex these things yeah. can be and that you, you it, that there's so many dimensions to and, and so many ways that that global processes and global, you know, or regional or national processes like changes in media technologies and <coughs> dynamics yeah. can then lead to changes in yeah. the way local yeah. Uh, yeah. local um, efforts are are then are then altered. So, um, so it's just that that's part of what's fascinating, but also challenging about working on these yeah. socio-ecological yeah. linkages. Yeah, and this intersection between social justice and environmental justice, mm -hmm. and and a lot of these, the Baltimore uprising, you know, Ferguson, the unrest has been about people being sort of left out of processes. And what that means in terms of this human and nature connection as well. If you're left out of processes about making decisions about your neighborhoods or feeling that sense of control, how does that affect 
how you view the sense of place and and the, the, the role of nature in that context yeah. and and you know the, the other thing that questions people are yeah, still yeah, are, are working yeah, on actively yeah, but we don't yeah. you know, we don't yeah. have the answers no, to we certainly don't have answers yeah. definitely yeah and I think a really interesting part of the question too is you know there's some there's some differences between Baltimore and St Louis in terms of sort of the politics of Baltimore St Louis yeah. are very different yeah, the politics of Baltimore St Louis County in terms of who the local government is, how yeah. people engage, you know, and those those are odd. I think that I agree, Paige. Those are those are questions that are really that are complex, sort of yeah. complex, and and you know, like like even even the question. I mean, I think a lot of ways we have a really well defined sense of idea of what sense of place means. Sometimes in a rural setting, mm-hmm. or to quote a natural setting, and you know, but when you get into cities, what sense of place? You know, yeah. what's that, what's mm-hmm. that mean? Mm-hmm. And, and what is the tie to land? Yeah. To the land, in a way. Yeah. Well, and, and the question, you know, um, like ecological society has a has a uh, working group called traditional ecological knowledge. Yeah, and and I know they've really struggled with what that term means because okay, so if you're in a city, do you have traditional knowledge? Like if you live in a yes. city, do you have traditional knowledge and do you have knowledge of your neighborhood? And does that does that weigh the same way as say somebody who might be growing up on a Navajo reservation in Arizona? Where you know they're they're dealing where you say well, but they're important to talk to them because they have a long they have a centuries old tradition of understanding ecological processes yet so does somebody say in Baltimore have have knowledge of equality. Yeah, somebody's grown up and lived there and maybe for, for a couple of generations. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, those, so those, I think, like Paige mm-hmm. said, those yeah. are questions that are really, really complex. I'm sure once even in Fresno, you've probably yeah. seen those similar kinds of questions. How do you put together the ideas of what's going on in Fresno? And Yeah, and uh, Fresno is a somewhat different city again and, and because you have waves of migrants coming in from different parts of the world with different kinds of ecological knowledge and then mm-hmm. trying to sort of negotiate how the urban space is going to be used, mm-hmm. even, you know, conflicts over what they grow in their front yards. Yeah. You know, some communities want to do more vegetable gardening or have chickens and things like that. That's mm-hmm. also sometimes led to conflicts with, with institutions. So, again, there's that element of, you know, people shaping the environment and, to, and this whole overlay of institutions and rules and things like that. Mm-hmm. That make it messy. So, so in it's in some ways, even though you've been talking about urban ecology, so you mentioned it's you know started maybe 40, 50 years ago with, with some of the early work as looking at ecology in the city. Mm-hmm. But we still it seems to me that still scratching the surface in terms of really getting at some of these more complex mechanisms that might shape the space that is yeah. available to other species yeah. mm-hmm. to live in the city, which is what the urban biodiversity is about. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's, this is a fascinating conversation. I could, we could probably keep talking for a while. We could, and yeah. Thank you. Good, thank you. And that's our show for today. Science, a candle in the dark, will be back on Tuesday, August 25th. The Central Valley Cafe Scientifique will return to Peeves Pub in September for its ninth season. For more information about the cafe and announcements about upcoming events, please visit our website at valleycafesci.org. That's V-A-L-L-E-Y-C-A-F-E-S-C-I dot O-R-G. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter. This show is produced by Madison Cotty and Vic Bedoyan, and the theme music was composed by Scott Hatfield. Until next month, happy sciencing, because remember, science is a verb.